What Would It Look Like, a podcast that inspires and empowers you to build transformative movements by living with one foot in the world we have not yet created. I'm your host, Ebony Isis Booth. I am a life alchemy coach, cultural strategist, and fly auntie. I believe and hold at the center of my work that healing is possible, magic is real, and love is the answer. It's from this place that I coach and guide cycle breakers through the inevitability of their own growth and transformation. I help people move from unworkable to unfuckwittable through a Black womanist lens that prioritizes healing, radical self-love, and liberation. I am joined by artist, producer, co-conspirator, creative accomplice, and friend, Jonas. Together, we are going to take a coach approach to the work of liberation. What's up, Jonas? Say what's up to the people. What's up? What's up? What's up? I'm excited. I'm excited. I love that. I love that. We got through the intro. I heard you laugh when I said fly auntie. I don't just know this. All right. I mean, you know not that it's funny. You know, it's not. It's source. It's source. <laughs> but, you know, that was a chuckle of, 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 you know, I'm right there with you. That's what's I'm up. not a fly That's auntie, but I see you. I see you out yeah. there. But you are approaching like fly uncle, like the cool uncle. Mm-hmm age you yeah. know what i mean or, you i know. suppose so i'm i'm a cool uncle i i'm yeah. definitely that mm-hmm. absolutely that um that title comes from a conversation about like what role you would play in the village like who are you in the village um mm-hmm. what it, what is your role and so i see myself as an auntie um like a resource you know what i mean like an intermediate between generations, um, a supporter, a nurturer, a loving adult, you know, someone who holds wisdom and love for all the children and they mamas and they daddies and them. You know what I mean? So that's that's the vibe. That's the vibe. Being a fly. I see. I see. I see myself as all those things, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like that's in it. the community. You know? Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I'm excited because we have been talking about this project for a long time. And here mm-hmm. we are to do this work to come together and really sort out the concept of Black liberation. And most of this work was inspired by a song that you wrote and produced called A Dream Ebony, which asks mm-hmm. the question Do you really want Black people to be free? More and than anything else. More than, more anything, than else. anything else. Do you really mm-hmm. want Black people to be free? So I'm wondering if you could just talk briefly about the inspiration for that song and the power in that question. Because it's it's a it's a yes or no question. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's so much in the yes and so much in the no. What mm-hmm. what led you to, to write and create that? Uh, I would say... The initial moment that spurred that was I would have these long conversations with one of my best friends, Morgan, and we a lot of times we talk about the state of blackness in the world. And we just sort of came to this conclusion that perhaps we hadn't really seen the needle move much in our lifetime. And that mm. was on us, you know, on me, on every member. So I realized that we were not free still. And all of a sudden became this the preeminent concern of my life. Do I want black people to be free? It seems like a simple black answer, liberation. but it's like, yeah, it became the preeminent concern of my life in that moment when I realized that it's like, that's how it has to be. As a generation gets bequeathed, the struggle gets bequeathed, the task, and they must pick it up. 
And and mm. somebody like myself who considered I consider myself to be very able bodied, very able minded. I literally have no excuse, you know. Mm. And so I think with that song, one thing that was really interesting was like I had this piece of music that somebody had given me. Well, it's, it's this band. They're called the Dream Ivory. But somebody showed me the song, and I immediately started coming up with this melody and these and that question was lurking in my head that question do you want black people to be free and and it was really premised by that first you really got to ask yourself do you want mm -hmm. black people to be free more than anything else and that was a question for me and so when i started to write the song i remember initially there were these sort of recapitulations of the, the problem what's going on and then it was like I'm not feeling, and then I just started to imagine black liberation, like a singular figure who was free and who was black, or me being with them in that moment, just being free. And that brought me to tears. I was like, even now, just talking about it, the idea of being free was so triggering. And, and to de describe that mm. and, and to just imagine that, not imagine the problem. We know the problems, but to imagine a world where these things had been solved. So, you know, at that point, I mean, I feel like that's the preeminent song of my life, you know, and I think it's, it defines my life, everything I do henceforth and everything I've done preceding, because I think all the work and all the music and all the stuff I, was leading to that question, you know? Mm. So that moment and that song was like, broke open. I was broke open at that point. Mm. That's so powerful. When you, I remember when I heard it, I was like... It, the the melody is it goes along with you know this the genre that you have created through this work um which is dream pop for black people and <laughs> the 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 it's 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 a lullaby it's also kind of a hymn um there's spirit in it it's it's it takes this really spiky question that would be maybe it's it's confrontational but mm -hmm. in this um in this compassionate way there's really a, a a strong center of self energy in it where the the personal accountability that you took that you're talking about shows up in the question so when we mm -hmm. started when you and I started talking about just a conversation cuz we get on the phone and talk <laughs> for hours yeah. about anything, mm -hmm. but very particularly about Black liberation and healing, um, we started to see another place where there is really great alignment in your work and my work as a coach. And this mission that I hold as kind of the the answer to all of the unsolvable challenges that we face is that healing is possible magic is real and love is the answer. And the unsolvable problem of the oppression of Black people globally, in the United States particularly, and individually for each of us, has this like really striking parallel, right? In this, in a way that we just started to explore. And the podcast really was born out of that. Well, how do we apply healing, magic, and love to this unsolvable issue of mm -hmm. Black liberation if our answer to this question that you've asked is an emphatic yes? 
Like my answer to that question is yes. More than anything else, I do want black people to be free. Um, mm-hmm. And there's then all of the words and the concepts and the theorem and the and the ideas and the frameworks and the politics and everything else that is behind that. But the answer is yes. So mm-hmm. if we get together to unpack that, this is where we show up in the work. Um, and that's why we're here. So over the course of this season or this experiment, with the podcast, it's going to be to apply a coach approach to the, a coach approach to this concept of like, well, how do we really strategize toward liberation in a achievable way, um, on a level that I see it being essential for the individual, for each of us as just human beings living and existing in the world, but also on a um, like a, the concentric circles of ourselves, so ourselves the people in our homes, the people in our communities, in our neighborhoods, like, and the world, Craig, the world, right? Eventually. World. Um, but how do how do we start with the one? So I want to start with talking about these, these, this mission or these three cu- guiding principles, but I also want to share a quote um, that really inspires this idea of us having one foot in the world that we wish to create. And I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to read it. And then we'll talk about the vision itself. How's that sound? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. This is a quote by Aurora Levins Morales, who is a uh, Puerto Rican sister, poet, writer, activist. Um, and it says, in order to build the movements capable of transforming our world, we have to do our best to live with one foot in the world we have not yet created. I believe unhealed trauma is the most dangerous force on earth. It's the mechanism through which violence and cruelty and greed reproduce. Just as battered children have higher likelihood of growing up to be battered or battering adults, oppressed people who have not had the opportunity to do the work of collective healing can end up assuming oppressor roles to others. And the pattern of feeling victimized and believing that, therefore, the world owes us more than it owes other people is particularly deadly. One response to having felt helpless in the face of horrific horrific abuses is getting stuck in trying to prevent what's already happened. This can lead to militarization, to extreme nationalism, to the kind of opportunism that is willing to win some kind of sovereignty or security for our own group at the expense of others, which of course only continues the cycle, creating new groups of desperate people. I love that. I love that quote. That was amazing. That sums it up. That sums it up. I mean, that's, that's real. Hard. I agree with so right? much that was said. Like, first, the unhealed trauma thing. I mean, and I think that that's, I think that's what we're talking about here. And I want to speak to the, well, first off, like, I think the coaching paradigm, it initially came to me because I, uh, you know, utilized your services for a call and it was extremely transformative. And we just talked about the personal, my personal life, you know what right. I mean? And I remember thinking to myself, this mechanism that she's using, the things that she uses, I just started to extrapolate and and put in all these different aspects of my life. And then it was kind of simultaneous with, like I was talking about this burgeoning consciousness, this burgeoning sense of responsibility and, and really began to apply that, that paradigm, those traits, healing is possible. Magic is real. And love is the answer in my political analysis. And that's when it was like, Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Another yes. breakthrough moment. You know what I mean? And I think that's what we're yes. talking about is really merging like uh, a sense of health. And, and when you think about the body politic, we think about a human body, you know, and I think it's, mm -hmm. the, I think they're very analogous. Like I've, I've always said this, I believe that that's the best metaphor for humanity as a whole is the human body. Yeah. Absolutely. And health and wellness must be approached in politics, you know? So if we see, I mean, that, that also draws a parallel to this quote in that first statement of us living with one foot in the world that we have yet to create, right? So if this is the body politic, if we are embodied in our wholeness as individuals with that same metaphor, what is your vision for the world that we have not yet created? Well, I think, you know, I genuinely believe the most pressing issue facing humanity is racism and particularly anti-blackness for all humanity. It is a stage four metastasized cancer inside of the body politic and it will destroy us all. I think one of the things that I'm most emphatic about is the notion that anti-blackness is only harming black people. It's one of the ways that it harms all people because there's a mm -hmm. direct correlation between your arm, your leg, your head, you know, and so when you attribute certain elements of the body as if they're not a part of the body, that is a form of self-harm. So mm -hmm. one of the elements I believe in addressing this issue of anti-blackness and of black liberation, we will heal all of humanity in this most primitive and primal way that is necess that is a necessity for us to evolve, for us to not meet certain doom, certain extinction. And I can tie the dots because one of the things I've always said also is that I genuinely believe you can tie any political situation, any political quagmire, even things that seem completely uninvolved with anti-Blackness and immediately see how this particular social ill, this particular political problem harms Black people the most. And even... Like, for instance, mm. European conflict. I could even talk about Russia and the Ukraine, which seemingly has no Black people involved, right? And talk about all these ways this is directly harming the entire world, but Black people disproportionately worse. And I feel like mm -hmm. when you talk about a vision for the earth is if Black people are free, the body is healed. That's how mm. I feel. I genuinely feel yeah. if Black people are free, the body is healed. And I think the next question is, what does free mean? I think first off, there is nowhere safe in the world for black people. There is no sanctuary, not in Africa, not in America, not in South America, not in Asia. There is nowhere that black people are free from the scourge of anti-blackness. So there's no possibility black people are free. So I think that a lot of times the paradigm I use is politically, and and this is, you know, one of the people I look to most for input is Kwame Ture and his, mm -hmm. and he speaks about the United States of Africa, a socialist, a scientific socialist state. And I think that that's ultimately, without that, I don't think black people can be free. And I think the second component that I, I genuinely believe is that in America, United States of America, the descendants of enslaved people need reparations. And the state of reparations, and I think this is when we can really get to break, what does reparations mean? The entirety of this, the United States of Africa, and 
ADO, uh, you know, the situation with the descendants of enslaved African people in America is a reparations package. Because the definition of reparations is not compensation. It is to repair, to restore to its previous status. That's mm-hmm. the literal definition. So the reparations package that I've imagined, which I think one of the goals that we have here in this is to eventually, hopefully write litigation. And this litigation, whether it can be passed or whatever, it defines an, a decolonization plan for Africa and a reparations package for Black America. And the term that I wanted, I wanted to call it the Dream Ebony Act, but I, through this process of these conversations and then inviting more knowledgeable people about statecraft and politics and legislation, I would like to emerge from our podcast with a piece of legislation that we've written that details a reparations package for America and a particular, or for the descendants of enslaved Africans in America and also for a decolonization package or process for Africa. And obviously the entire world is looting Africa, but the United States is one of its most preeminent looters. So in the nation of writing legislation for the United States government that addresses these things, it just makes something that is seemingly intangible, which is black liberation, into a tangible document that we can then begin to discuss and analyze. So in your vision for the world that we have not yet created, there is no racism. There is a decolonized Mm -hmm. Africa. There is a reparations, mm-hmm. uh, reparations for United States Black folks and legislation through the United States government that supports a sustainable function of these things. What else? Those are four, four things that will, that will ultimately happen in this vision. But, well, is there anything that I'm missing that needs to happen? Well, I think one of the other things, one of the, the great works that I wanted us to do is to really talk about a code. A code of ethics for Black people, I think of a phrasing that we discussed was community agreements, but mm-hmm. um, sort of, you know, the 10-point plan that the Black Panthers have is a, is a great model, but this is almost like a code of ethics for Black people to navigate the world politically that you can refer to. So people can't imagine. They can agree, they can disagree, but it exists. And this is also a community effort. Let us write this, this document too. And because I think one of the main things that we will stress throughout is the intellectual effort of both reading and writing are the greatest weapons of liberation, period. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not just consumption of knowledge, but practical application of knowledge. What do we do with all this education, with all this learning, with all this reading, with all this studying, with all these talking? We create documents. Mm-hmm. Documents change the world. The Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. You know what I mean. Every con- every nation needs a constitution, and I think mm. nationalism, when you talk about Black people, is difficult because it's hard for people to imagine Blackness as an ethnicity. It's in and, and there's obviously these pre-existing nations in Africa, and then there's America. Mm-hmm. But I think the nation mindset, in such as that a wholeness, a collectivism amongst Black people that supersedes these, frankly, arbitrary lines written by U- European colonialists. A code mm-hmm. of, that's the sort of thing I see that a spirit that takes hold of people and immediately rapidly shifts and elevates consciousness when people have this sense of pride and nationhood outside of the terms of nationhood, like in terms of 
countries with barriers and borders, but blackness as a nation, the United States of Africa, this is a conceptualization that extends beyond just a geographic location. It's also a conceptualization of this code, of this nation. And what would it look like? We have, so in the high vision, Mm -hmm. what does it look like? Well, I think- When this vision plays out. I think that when I talk about the preeminent systems that oppress people, I talk about three things. And this is sort of from the bell hook school of defining- Come on, bell hooks. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying is, is I, we are building on the work of the work. You know what I mean? We are building on the work of the work. For sure. White supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. The world that mm. I'm talking about, all three of these ideas are dismantled and extinct. They no longer function. There's no longer a racial hierarchy. There's no longer a gender hierarchy. And there's no longer a system that prioritizes the capital over the people. What is, so when you, when I hear you say that, Mm -hmm. I hear, you know, it's kind of, this is one of those magic is real moments when we talk about manifesting things and speaking, speaking life into, you know, creation from our utterances, like no white supremacy, no patriarchy, no capitalism. We don't have these things. I often say that the universe doesn't speak and doesn't recognize contractions. So we're still, even by naming it, reifying it, we're, we're still imagining that past that, um, that Aurora Morales talks about, right? Like we're still naming white supremacy, even in our erasure, our attempt to erase it. But what is there in its place? So as we're visioning this future of the world that we're creating and literally having one foot in it, like, what does the soil feel like on underneath that foot? What is the temperature of that air in that space? Literally, what is present, not what is not present? I think you know what I mean? the word that I use a lot that I really believe in is egalitarian, an egalitarian world. Which okay. means that what, all of yeah. these hierarchies. What does that mean? So I think that sums up both the first and second in terms of the lack of a gender hierarchy and the lack of a racial hierarchy is the equity amongst people mm-hmm. on merits that don't pre-exist based on basically arbitrary ideas. So when you talk about imagining this world, I imagine it in steps. I do believe that the nexus of black oppression is in the United States. I believe the war is centered here. So when I talk about a reparations package, I believe that the number one thing affecting Black people is economic disenfranchisement in stepping in front of political liberation. Let me, let me, let me, uh, so basically what I was saying is when I envision this world without these hierarchies, a lot of times I use the terms of socialism 
because I do believe that the idea of a society that prioritizes its people is a perfect idea. Now, the practical application of socialism throughout the world has obviously been questioned or, or the, the mere existence of an imperialist capitalist world works over time to make sure there cannot be successful socialist states. But the reality is an egalitarian society that prioritizes its people, prioritizes its environment, and prioritizes its resources and distribution will avoid much of the concerns that we have. Because I do think a lot of times, I think that in pockets, we can live by these principles. And when we live in these principles and in, in pockets in our life, they reverberate outwards. Now, Okay. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you because I, I want to get there, but I want you to, I want to invite you to actually play in the space. And mm -hmm. I feel you being like, you know, there's, there's all of, there are all of these like, um, concepts of like, what would work, what hasn't worked almost like you're, you're defending the argument as you're making it. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, because, you know, that's how you think you think a lot. You're already thinking about potential detractors or detractions. I mean, for whatever reason, that's that's how my brain works. You know what I so, mean? So listen, that's fine. Like mm -hmm. that's that is a natural response to mm -hmm. doing the work of like radical resistance or mm -hmm. the concept of even talking about how to logistically upend an imperialist globe. You know what I mean? Like you're, this is some like Jedi shit, right? Like literally we out here with like a lightsaber and a hood, like let's go um, mm -hmm. against the empire. Right. So it's, it's major work and it's radical concept, but also I'm, I'm inviting us to tap into the imagine, the power of imagination. Mm-hmm. And prioritizing imagination just, and it's, I'm going to talk about Beyonce for like two seconds real quick. Beyonce, <laughs> <laughs> just give me a second. Okay. Give okay. Me a second. Okay. Okay. Beyonce um, posted uh, on stage at the concert up on the screen and one of the reels and one of the visuals that are happening um, that um, imagination is more important than intellect than 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 intellect arguable sure mm -hmm. but worth exploring mm -hmm. there are so many quotes from across the world that talk about them the importance of imagination our ability to visualize to create the future that we want to see i think that we exhaust ourselves. And you just said this, you just spoke to this point about us, the, the, the empire working overtime to prevent us from, you know, having functional socialist states. It is also working overtime internally in us to prevent us from tapping into the power of our imagination to, mm -hmm. to really ask the question that we are posing here, which is what does it look like, bro? Mm -hmm. Like when right, you, you want to hear something in, interesting. Um, yeah. It, I also fancy myself a bit of a screenwriter and, you know, okay. I wrote one pilot and it was a show called Trimming and it was about, you know, uh, my life basically and how I got here. But the other idea I had was, and this sparked from the, the writers of Game of Thrones had an idea to do a show called Confederacy about what would happen if the Confederacy had won the war and there was going to be, and immediately I got mm -hmm. to think about 
let me imagine a post-reparations America. And so I imagined, and so I imagined that it was about the head of state, which was a black woman who was a bisexual in a polyamorous relationship with both a man and a woman. I wrote the initial scene and everything. And the first pilot episode is about her going to Africa to essentially build a pipeline trade between Africans and Americans after reparations. And it was sort of like this conversation that occurs between the American president and a particular African head of state that sort of mirrors the dichotomy between Black Americans and Africans and sort of this political conversation. So basically in this world, this post-reparations world, she was a radical socialist president who was had this preeminent environmental concern. And this was after wars. This was an, a utopian premise. The literal idea was every future show is dystopian. This was a utopian premise. So it's like, oh, where's the drama in that? The maintenance of utopia must be dramatic, right? It's got to be interesting. So yes. that was that was that was really this an envisioning this practice. And I, I you know, <laughs> the idea for the show that the t- the title that I we were working with. I mean, her name was Zabia Simone. I mean, I'm telling you, I put in the work on this. Uh, like, I wrote okay, it. Listen, but I was, just, I, this, I, listen, the strike is over. Mm-hmm. Get Netflix to cut the check. You know what I mean? You. you know what I mean? I'm saying, I, just, I also, I want to invite you to talk about this, not in the past tense, but in the, the present Like it's going to happen. Yeah. Like it's a future. It's, it's, it would so, be a great work. Yeah. You, so what I hear is in your vision for the world that we have not yet corrected, c- created, we have a a black, bisexual, polyamorous head of state that is negotiating with the countries in, on the continent of Africa, a direct pipeline for support, support to maintain a utopian. Like, this is what happens in the future. Mm-hmm. When we have been reparated, uh, mm-hmm. when we when Africa is decolonized, when racism has ended in its codified, you know, ways, and when we have a new um, agreement around how we will exist on the planet, we will have leadership that is representative of the most marginalized among us. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. a result of that, systems like white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism fall away. So we don't, you know what I mean? Like that's keep dreaming in that. I'm like, yeah, let's. So her name is Zabia Simone. Like Zabia Simone. Yeah. I literally, I promise you. And the opening scene is she wakes up in the morning in the, in her big bed. And she like, she wakes up next to her husband and maybe like after post morning sex. And she walks into this other bedroom where her artist lover is and had some morning <laughs> sex with them and then walks out and, and her and her secretary is like, good morning, Mrs. President. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I was literally the, the, the thing, you know, the cold open. No, I, I thought yes, I, I, we were tossing around ideas. Like I remember, uh, the matriarch was one idea. Blackland was another, I don't know. But I, the ideas for the title but to me, that felt like this would be my greatest work. But it's it's it was really rooted in that idea of like let's imagine that perfect world and what would it look like. And 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 I want to break down particular things because like saying the matriarch or I think functional societies have always have always had 
matriarchal values. And I think that's when you talk about the family, when you talk about family values, when you talk about the family as the nucleus, uh, they are matriarchal. You know what well, I mean? Yeah, because women give birth. I mean, the, the, the birthing bodies, the importance of a birthing body is the continuity of civilization and, and the responsibility to feed and nourish and maintain and raise said body that has been birthed <laughs> tends to fall on the and, and the, that falls with our other. body politic premise that falls along with Absolutely. our body politic and then i think the second thing you know that i really wanted to bring up in that whole subject was like clearly i feel there's an equal if not parallel harm because we have a misogynistic society i don't want to overstate oh it's it's but I think when you talk about intersectionality and overlapping spaces of oppression, you talk about black womanhood and you, and as this nexus of overlapping oppression, let alone throw in sexual identities and gender identities. Just that next right there. Mm -hmm. I want to interrupt for a second because for the listeners who are the uh, non-black intersectional feminists, uh, who have participated in the in co-opting intersectionality away from its invention by Kimberly Crenshaw to really describe the interlocking systems of oppression that befall Black women in particular because of identity politics, because the personal is political, because of systems of capitalism, um, patriarchy, white supremacy, and anti-Blackness, race, class, and gender. This is the work of Black feminists, Black feminist thought, Black womanist theorem. Like It all is birthed from that place. The Kambahi River Collective, no one is free until the most marginalized among us are free. So the, the liberation of Black women Un unlocks everybody's chains, right? Um, and I think that the the term has been co-opted in such a way that is like, oh, I have a um hold on, I got a dog in here really <laughs> hating. You cannot you cannot come in here and mess this up, little bro. Take it the out. The wild here. thing, can we see the dog? Because he's so tiny. Giorgio Michael. Giorgio Michael. Giorgio Michael. <laughs> Diva and up my podcast. <laughs> Giorgio Michael is like, I don't care about intersectionality. I am. I don't care. As well. He's a white dog, by the way, psycho. <laughs> <laughs> he is a white male dog, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Not that this happens to Take have any. Yeah. Mm, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Um, Case in point, I don't yeah, even have to say anything out. else about it because Giorgio Michael's response definitely showed up there. So I know that I had <laughs> I interrupted there, but I get so tired of where intersectionality gets used. It's it's kind of like you know intersectionality, critical race theory, wokeism. All of these things are phrases that have gone through this co-optation by dominant culture or white culture um, under this. Um, analysis that somehow if I can, once I can absorb it and consume it and put it on as a white person, then it no, it somehow like neutralizes or destigmatizes the racial component of it, which is always rooted in anti-blackness, right? And that's a thing that 
just continues to happen. And I want to be sure that we interrupt that train of thought by by noticing how it just comes out. You know what I mean? When we talk about intersectionality, we are talking about the foundation of it, which is in the Black feminine experience, like in the Black woman, and so- the Black birthing bodies of that particular dynamic. And does it impact other folks? Absolutely. But you can't- you can't say that it's yours without acknowledging why it exists in the first place is all I'm saying. So and that's I what I'm it. saying is it's yeah. if you, if we start at the nexus of oppression, if we start at our most marginalized and reverberate outwards, we will all achieve liberation. It doesn't work right. outside in, it works inside out. But I think on this other thing that you were just saying about the intersectionality and in womanhood and all that other stuff is, is when we imagine this world, I imagine it to be the opposite of all of those things initially immediately that's my knee-jerk reaction so the opposite of white supremacy is not black supremacy it's the absence of racial hierarchy the opposite of patriarchy is not matriarchy it is the absence of gender hierarchy and the opposite of capitalism Mm -hmm. is socialism so immediately that frames the world this is the world a world that is so when you talk about and i and i think you made a great point it's like it's made in contrast to which sometimes can be hindering to its potential, but I think it's vital to its catalyzation, which is to say we need that contrast. We, we do this terrible world exists if for no other reason so that we can imagine a better world. If there's mm-hmm. no other reason this terrible world exists. So we must use what this terrible world offers us as examples of what not to do, of how not to be. Well, that really brings me to the next question, which is like, what is the what is important or essential about the realization of this vision? I think why that does it matter? Are, I think we're facing certain doom. I think as a race, we're facing extinction, and I think that we're facing extinction environmentally, and I think we're facing extinction sociologically, and I think our relationship sociologically and environmental are similar. The way we treat the world is the way we treat each other which is deeply destructive. So, and when, here's what I mean by that. What is the, what is it certain do? Extinction of humanity, extinction level events. Do I believe the last human being ever will be a rate? No, I just, we're facing the, we are on the precipice of a multiplicity of extinction level events, one after the other. And I feel like they are first rooted in a, the preeminent, and constant exploitation of Africa for a natural resource without reinvestment and the continual exploitation of black people throughout the world without reinvestment. And I think if we address those two things, we can save the world Mm. for everybody. If we don't, I assure you, these events will continue to happen and we cannot look up to this guy. Why is this happening? I'm telling you why it's happening. Because of anti-blackness. Anti-blackness is why we rape the earth and it's why we treat people like trash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you need to actualize it? I, I feel like I want to keep going in this vein. So like, what's, what do you need? Well, I, I think the crystallization of the vision was primary. So in my process of initially asking that question, my initial response was, let me just go read and let the term black liberation. And so a reparations package became clear. That's what is needed. And so then it's like, how do I, uh, a citizen without any political background, contribute to creating this? And then what I realized is I need community. I need Mm -hmm. to reach out to my community 
and tap into the resources amongst all these people to help with a singular goal. And that was the other thing I need, a singular goal, not the goal, but a goal and goal minded in terms of not ends justify the means goal minded, but you know, the best way to figure out where you're going is to figure out the destination. So to mm -hmm. me, I crystallized in the idea of writing legislation of, of obviously the notion of revolution as a violent thing and all this other stuff. And I'll get into some, because like you said, I pose my own arguments, but <laughs> the notion of writing this legislation just seemed like a crystallization in an even more tangible form. And uh -huh. then I believe the next steps will reveal themselves. Because one of the things I think is most confusing to people is the idea that these things seem impossible. So mm -hmm. if it's laid out in this cogent vision that talks about the practicality of application, we can no longer talk about its impossibility. Now we have to talk about why we don't want to do this. And that's a completely different conversation that, again, cannot be won. Because, again, we are on the side of truth and right and, and justice. We are right. This is mm -hmm. inarguable. And, and for periods of time, wrong can be empowered, but it has to work overtime. They are fighting against inevitability. And yeah. the, the, so, again, when you ask what I need, is not only do I need my community, but I need my community to also contribute and imagine mm -hmm. and be people who say, this is what you're missing. This is what you're forgetting and help me do this better. Not me, us. And I think this notion of community, that's what I was talking about, the practical application in tiny environments, socialist communities, socialist mm -hmm. families, socialist friendships. This is a socialist endeavor. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think when you talk about the manifestation of all these different ideas in, in the grand scale, I need to manifest them in the mini scale over and over. I need to create microcosms of black liberation, microcosms of, of United States of socialist, you know, United States of Africa, a scientific socialist state in my community all the time. I love it because it's, it's very clear. Like it's, it's the, the, the needs are clear. You need reparations, you need community, you need a singular goal. And that particular goal is to write legislation from that. Like whatever happens is kind of none of your business, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like once that this is a way to distill to one target. And I think sometimes when we think about in our, in our individual lives, these like overwhelming problems that we are facing mm -hmm. it gets we we get stuck in anxiety overwhelm causes our nervous system to shut down so we can't do anything but worry and then we're just coursing with cortisol and stress hormones and i just can't and i don't i can't the sky is literally falling on you you can't imagine but to have one singular crystallized goal to say i can do that thing and once that thing exists this creates an invitation to others to actually backfill the support that you need in order to keep you fueled and whole in the movement, but also to keep you in alignment with your community and your values and making sure your needs are met so that you can show up to the work to be um, effective and impactful in the movement. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I want to point out the ways in which this is like on the singular and on the global scale simultaneously. Micro it, it, and it, macro, yeah. All mm -hmm. at the same time. We're, mm -hmm. It's all connected. There, you know, anyway, it's like non-duality. 
boom, here you go. So my next question is, and you alluded to this, and I want to give you some time to really like go off on it. Mm-hmm. What's in the way? I think, and and I and I stress this enough in in our personal conversations, but uh, the language of liberation is not spoken. Mm. The language of liberation is we know very few people I know are fluent. And the way that you learn is you study and you read. So a lot of times what I need people to do is immediately develop the idea that any problem can be at least begun to be addressed with research, with reading, with study. So I need to be in pockets and collectives of communities who are equally invested in the perpetual elevation of one's education, the perpetual elevation of learning more about the subject. Now, so what we're talking about is a mental blockade. I believe that there are not, I believe the biggest concern is not the white people who don't believe it's possible. It is the black people who do not believe it's possible. My biggest thing in the way is black people who do not even conceive of black liberation. The idea that black liberation is possible, what it means that, that our condition is permanent and intractable, this is my biggest blockade. So that's mm. why I don't believe this is initially this act of rainbow coalition. This is between black people, for black people. That that term, dream pop for black people, that is what it's about. This is the dream for black people. And that's the way, and it's for black people. And it is by black people. When I say dream pop for black people, there's the genre, there's the sentence, there's the genre, which is this music dream pop that I've sort of centered around black liberation, a pre-existing genre that I've basically look to for inspiration and then made clear what it's about. But it's also a sentence. Make the dream pop for Black people. Mm-hmm. And it's the dream hard. popping for Black people is reparations packages that ultimately we don't achieve because of a handout. We achieve from organization, yeah. political and, and communal organization. I experienced something that, you know, we've talked about at length, but to give context, on August 12th, I went to this racial conference kind of thing. And it, it, it again, it was, it proved Breathe. to be fruitless. It proved <laughs> to be somewhat fruitless because, and I, and I said this to you, I had not taken into account the over conditioning of the square headed Negro, which, oh. is to say, which is to say, I did not imagine that I, to me, and, and this is something that I think we need to talk about is the profound conditioning of disillusionment. The profound conditioning of disillusionment has been imbued upon Black people for as long, the entirety of this is rooted in the destruction of, of dreams for Black people. You know, the idea that anything is possible for Black people. So like, what I re- experienced right away was the strongest, when I proposed these ideas like organization, when I talked about reparations, when I talked about Africanism, Pan-Africanism, Africanism, these ideas, the strongest resistance was from Black people. And yeah. I was not fighting Black people. I was fighting the conditioning of the square-headed Negro. Okay. That's what I was fighting. So okay. that's my biggest, that's the thing in a way, the conditioning of the square-headed Negro <laughs> is my biggest opponent. Heard. I want to, there's a... <laughs> Okay. Yes, the and the overconditioning of the square-headed Negro is like <laughs> a thesis of. <laughs> I've been um, kicking him thesi. I've been kicking thesi. 
But I also want to say, like, there there sounds that that frustration that you have toward <laughs> that resistance. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Uh-huh. I, I I sense the frustration. We have talked about it. I've <laughs> I've heard the frustration of it. But I also just want to invite in like compassion around yes, yes, everything that you've just named and the efficacy of the empire to condition the square headed Negro as we refer to it. You know what I mean? The the it is not accidental. Right. And so you have to remember that there are people who derive safety, derive Mm -hmm. their sense of identity and security Mm -hmm. from their position and place inside the system. Mm -hmm. And capitalism, patriarchy and white supremacy benefit when they. Um they are providing that they're, they're massa They're You know what I mean? It's like, they're the ones who provide your, your food and shelter and clothing. They are the ones um, who you go to, to get the bake loan. They have the power to deny you. They have the power to write the red lines in the districts and um, gerrymander election cycles. And that's, that's the game. And then to be in the system pleading um, for safety, for human rights, for um, your life, right is is the condition of black folks that gets reproduced and sold back to us and shown to us as our only reality so mm-hmm. i just want to invite you to think that it's less about the square-headed negro and more about the shape of your head right right which is which is okay so when i talk okay so just so, because it, i laid out the invite, obstacle which, no, no, i'm not no, saying no. i haven't imagined the I, the overcome. That's not what I'm saying. Because my next mm-hmm. question is, who do you need to be in order to live in the world that you envision? Like, who are you in that world? Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to like, I don't know what we do with the square headed Negroes, right? Okay. Okay. I don't I, have a solution. I have a, I have a, I have a solution. I have a solution okay. for the square headed okay. Negro. Okay. Here's what I, here's what I want to say. So if it's my, what my concept is awareness, alignment, and action, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're aware of the vision, being in alignment with that vision is the next step. So that no matter what you're going through in the process of like realization, actualization, and achievement of that goal, and, and living in that vision, it's, it's alignment isn't a straight line. It's about balance and harmony. So how do you position yourself so that you can navigate around the square heads and still see the stage? You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm not going to put in another that's, Beyonce that's, 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 that's a, reference here. That's, but a like, good, that's a good uh, metaphor for it because I think that it's like the square headed Negro is in the audience. And they will clap when everybody claps. They will cheer when everybody cheers. You just have to put on the performance. So this is what I mean by that. Do I expect every single person to be a quote unquote revolutionary? No. But I expect every single person when offered the opportunity for the choice of revolution down to a yes or a no, they will choose yes. And they will choose yes because the the current conditions are unacceptable. So the, the primary, like you have to look at the world and every potential problem as an opportunity. So the current conditions of the world, which are so deplorable, are the opportunity for said things. So it's like, to me, it's like doing this work of writing the litigation, doing this work of presenting it to 
all, if not most people is a simple yes or no. Again, you really have to ask yourself, do you want black people to be free? And the people who give an emphatic yes, they would be much more enumerable than if it's a more complicated question than that. So you really have to do the work to lead them to that simple question, which is to say, we collect and connect minds with the people willing to do the work, but most people are not going to do the work, but they are going to have to make the choice. And we got to lead it up to that paradigm where they make the choice. And the choice is, is inertia. Like after they make the choice, the forces through which we have created these forces of nature will just push them and herd them in the direction of their liberation. That's how I pre-imagine it. I mean, okay. I, the thing that's coming up for me when you talk about that is like, I, I really try to stay out of the manosphere. Like I try mm -hmm. super hard to avoid the manosphere. I think it is not only anti-black, but anti-woman, um, anti-femme. It's, it's homophobic. It's, it's transphobic. It's all of the, all things the bad things. I, all the terrible things that go bump in the night live in the manosphere. However, it's inescapable because we live in a white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist society. So if you got a penis and a microphone, go off, bruh, right? Like, mm -hmm. I see the reels on TikToks with, like, the younger generation of um, biracial, cishet men, the incel class of, of dude, bro, who is like... Black people are whining. Do you there are there isn't racism. You guys aren't oppressed. This is ridiculous. People who really feel like it is better and safer for them to align themselves with dominant culture, with with white supremacist ideology in order to have some safe harbor by being like, you know, the Stevens of the Django films of the world. You know what I mean? Who really just want to climb all the way inside the belly of the beast. Mm -hmm. through the anus to get <laughs> you know what i mean like to uh -huh. get some the, property up in there they want some yeah, property up in there, in like, there you know i mm -hmm. will pick the corn out for you sir like <laughs> those people <laughs> but and that, that's how disgusting it is that is really how disgusting it is. it is oh yeah that's it's unfortunately accurate absolutely mm -hmm. there are also people in the community um who you know Audrey Lord said the master's tools will not dismantle his house, but these folks are expert blacksmiths to not only wield the master's tools, but to shape them, form them, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sell mm -hmm. them on the open market, all those things. So these people, what I hear you saying is like, when posed with the question, I guess when the revolution comes, mm -hmm. right? These people will still be given a choice do you want all black people to be free more than anything else? And they will and say we, no. They will say no. And mm -hmm. in their mind would be absorbed by the empire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How sustainable is it? Like, do we, I don't know. It's like, do, and, and what do we do about that? Do we let them go? Do, how do we identify? I don't know. It's just kind of, this is completely off the 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 frame. No, of no, the no. It's a great point. You're talking like... about the more virulent opposition within the community, not just yeah. like the happenstance opposition, the virulent opposition, or the people who have who have in, internalized opposing liberation, un, unbeknownst to themselves. Now, I want to talk about 
some analogies. But first off, I think a great example of the Manosphere is Fresh and Fit, the podcast Fresh and Fit. You familiar uh, with that one? Okay, well, so. it was. Are it, these the ones probably, who got kicked off of YouTube? They got kicked out of there. There you studio. go. That was literally what I was talking about. Oh, uh, I is guarantee. You got to make a sandwich for your girl or your girl has to make you sandwiches or something like that. Or she don't love you. That guy. Invariably. Yeah. Yeah. That okay. Guy. Invariably. <laughs> in, invariably the process of radicalization is the necessity for some people to reach the process of radicalization is calamity, is tragedy, is disillusionment, but it is inevitable. Because so they, do you want the fresh and fit dudes to like hear you out on Black liberation? No, no. I think that they are, again, the flotsam and jetsam. They're just, they're like, ultimately they're, it's like when you talk about a pipe and stuff gets like congealed on the pipe, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it blocks, they're like the congealed clogging cholesterol of an artery. And you just got to go in there and scrape it out. But the reality uh, is he they, said they need a bypass. I have never yeah. been told that I am a, a, <laughs> a read okay go ahead <laughs> okay so so again the point i'm trying to make Rad is that them. i feel like they respond to dominant culture so we must yeah. meet dominant culture they respond to trends they respond to fads when given the choice when i say make them a choice i don't mean a choice in the sense of like sophie's choices i'm talking about an offer you can't refuse so what i'm saying is ah. so i'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse yeah when okay. you're talking about, if you are a black person and you oppose black liberation, you are championing your own, A, exploitation or extinction. Now, you have already inoculated, inoculated yourself. You are not a concern. You mm. are only a possible proponent or eventual waste. Or a liability, though. Like, let's not. Really, I, don't like, know. Like, let's, I think. I think when you talk about the elevation of consciousness, and if people don't elevate with the collective consciousness, they suffer a form of "quote unquote" canceling that is a fate worse than death. And they have a choice: they either rapidly evolve or they get pushed to the dustbin of history. I'll give you an example. Many okay. people were Nazis. Mm-hmm. Then Nazism was disproven. If you are still a Nazi in 2023. In the open sense, in any sort of overt sense, you're a non-factor. Nobody takes Nazis seriously. Now, mm-hmm. are you still a fascist? Are fascist? But yes, because this thing is forced to evolve. Now, ultimately, I do not consider the square-headed Negroes as evolvers of white supremacy. They merely can be proponents, but they cannot help enhance or innovate it. So, so kind of like Sims. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. You make you make that connection. I'll be playing no video games. I don't play video <laughs> games, but I mean like the I mean like the actual the what are they called? The they're like the 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 non-adamant video game objects like the people in oh, the background. NPCs. The NPCs. NPCs, non-player characters. Yes, non-player they are non-player characters. characters. Okay. Yes. So this is what happened. Video, this is for the non-player this, characters. Again, for the audience at home. Mm-hmm. Square-headed Negroes, we will find maybe um, a less challenging or problematic incendiary term by calling them NPCs, okay. non-player characters. Okay. Oh, uh, you don't like that. You don't like non-PC. 
<laughs> be likened to make things less virulent. I don't, you know what I mean? I, don't wanna, I, I want them to feel the full weight and sting of the insult. But let me tell you where that term came from. I did not call them this. In that August 12th thing, I remember the woman said to me, first off, she said two wild ass things. First off, she was like, I don't think it's political. I think we're spiritual beings and this is a spiritual, what? Listen, I respect spirituality, but the reality is this is a political thing. Okay, and spiritual beings, I'm sorry. I don't believe that's a real thing. I think that's a ghost. We are human beings with a spiritual component, but we are not beings of spirit. That's a ghost. Second off, the woman said... <laughs> that's a ghost, ma'am. But do you see, I can also see like how that train of thinking, like... That's literally the disembodied response to racialized trauma. And it's also called spiritual bypassing. But go off. Yes, 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 yes. Compassion. Compassion for their necessity for spiritual bypassing. No, I, I respect it. And then that's a great term. The second thing she said was, I was raised a Negro. Oh, yeah, she was. Though. I didn't come up with the term Negro. They took it and claimed it. I remember, like I was talking about, the bards of negritude, like Fanon was saying. And I want to talk about this too. Fanon makes a decent argument in this book, The Wretched of the Earth, about the idea that even coming to the table and negotiating with the oppressor for your freedoms is a foolhardy endeavor, which I 100% mm -hmm. concede and agree. By writing the legislation, I am not coming to the table to negotiate. I am galvanizing a community around a central idea. And that act, that collectivism to form, to write this will move mountains. I don't expect to come to the table and gently request my liberation, but I don't necessarily believe, like I'm, I'm proceeding because we were going to get into the books that we were reading, you know, but, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I'm, I'm in them. And so the other one was Blood in My Eyes, which is like talks about the eventuality of violent revolution. Same with Fanon, revolution is inherently violent. There are other forms of violence, and I do believe intellectual yeah. violence, political violence, and spiritual violence are the pre predecessors and necessities to actual, without the ideological violence, the physical violence is meaningless. Yeah. I'm not opposed. I'm not going to sit here and condemn violence. Do I believe in violent overthrow and upheaval? It rarely works out because militarism takes over, and I'm not proposing, but invariably, what we're talking about is these 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 metaphorical things about David and Goliath, right? And 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 knocking over. And so, acts of violence. I, the books really, particularly Blood in My Eyes, talks about like targeted violence, specific acts of violence, and all these other things. But that is later. I think I believe the reality is ideological violence, political violence, intellectual violence is a necessity and what i'm so when i and 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 what i'm talking about is articulating these quote-unquote controversial subjects controversial ideas in such as a way as to where they are pervasive and disseminate into sound bites into like a dream ebony i like i'm i begin to think about the marketing of black liberation i begin to think about the ways because i do genuinely believe that when we talk about galvanizing people, it's around ideas. Mm -hmm. People go to war for ideas. People yeah. die for ideas. So one must come up with the idea. And that's, that's generally what I'm proposing is the articulation of black liberation into political terms and singular political actions 
and and notions and 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 simple as the Declaration of Independence. It's no yeah. different. I hear you. I and I I feel like that is this articulation is like okay, what needs to be healed? Like, how do you identify the the source? Ooh, that's a great question. Of that's pain. a great question. What um, is? Hold on, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, so there's. So there's. This is threefold. Like to just bring okay. it back to like, what is? What is the wound that needs to be healed? Because if you keep picking at it, it ain't gonna heal, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to identify the source of of harm or hurt, right? In the individual as well as the collective. But it starts with the individual because in in this in this i this this statement that we need to um, proliferate the ideology, the idea of black liberation to reanimate the the work of our ancestors and all the things that have been, have been written. Like I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh yeah. Cause you know, Langston Hughes asked us what happens to a dream deferred, right? Like the what does it mean to make the dream pop for black people to have verb in your mission statement also for it to be like a poppy tagline, easy to remember a phrase that looks good on a t-shirt and also have it mean, you know what I mean? Like these, so all I'm I'm with you on all of that. Mm-hmm. In the in the heady the headspace of the idea, I want to like drop down into the being to the body of it because when you talked about the square headed Negro, that square head is still attached to a body. And even the sister that you talked about, who was like completely disenfranchised out of her own humanity to just choose to live as a spiritual entity, as opposed to being an, an abject, like a site of violence, your physical body being a site of violence for this, these systems to enact all of their isms and schisms on you is like, that is how deep it goes. So if we drop down out of the head and get into the body, who must you be in order to, yeah, you in order to live in the world where you have one foot placed, like who, who must you be? I think the continue, I mean, if I were to, um, I want you to, I want to invite you to feel I want you to feel for the answer, not think for the answer. Right. I'm trying to think, well, okay. I'm trying to think oh, a role, a term, right? And I would just continue to use that word articulator. I need to be an articulator. I need to continue to take ideas from a nebulous state mm-hmm. to an articulated state and be open and to continue to be open to the rapid evolution of myself. Mm-hmm. So as I go into the world, and learn new concepts and learn new ideas and steep myself in the education and become more fluent in the language of liberation, I need to become a translator for the language mm. of liberation, an articulator mm-hmm. of the language of liberation. And, and, and that means in my art, that means in this podcast, that means in my screenplay, that means in every single act, I need to continue to articulate and translate the language of liberation so that it can be spoken amongst other people. And then mm-hmm. these conversations will occur when I'm not around. Yeah. Because in the same way that certain ideologies can become mental yokes that will enslave or oppress you even when the oppressor is not around, liberating ideologies can be liberators even when the quote unquote liberator is not around. It's about inception. When people have an idea in, incepted into them, so to speak, they mm-hmm. cannot take it out. They cannot yeah. take it out. Planting yeah. the seed. And, yeah. and 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 
all human minds are fertile soil. Mm. I really appreciate that. I think it's super beautiful. And I want to, I guess the, the next question I have is like, if you look at your life right now, where are you already in it? Where are you already living it? Like, where can you smell the air of this world today? Because I, 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 I see, okay, just from, I would say this is about a year, a year of concerted effort. Mm-hmm. I see the tangible results. I see it in a collective consciousness. I see it in my community locally. I see, I see the fervor of liberation spreading, disseminating, even if it's amongst, if, if it, was, it was two people when it started, it's 10 now, it's 12 mm-hmm. now. And then I, I continue, and, and I believe that that leap, two to 10, is, you can measure that. Two to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 250. Two, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Extrapolate that growth. Mm-hmm. And then my actions become wider and broader. So like the music videos, this podcast, the screen, because I am somebody who imagines things and then mm-hmm. does them. I am a doer. I'm not a talker. I'm a manifester. So mm-hmm. I genuinely believe that the concerted effort that I put in the year, I see the tangible results of, and it's enough to sustain me and to keep going, to go harder. And mm-hmm. in this interim time, all I've done is improve my ability to create resources for said struggle, to create, uh, to educate my mind. Like we've talked about in the past where I said, it is my responsibility to learn the language of liberation, to read these books, to build upon the work of my ancestors. That's my job. It's not mm-hmm. uh, an option. It's not something, oh, I just elected to do. It's not an elective. You know what I mean? And so there's You're this definite thing. Class curriculum. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's like there's this thing about I see myself, A, embodying it primarily in the sense of like I in my, I am a revolutionary. I am perpetually in revolutionary thought. I'm perpetually reimagining the world. I'm perpetually, and and also I refer to Karl Marx. I am in a perpetual state of the ruthless criticism of everything. Yeah, perpetually, including myself. Yeah, every day, I take inventory every day to improve, and I never treat this situation. I appreciate my progress. I, I, I'm, I, I give myself grace and love. I, I, it doesn't come from a place of self-loathing or self. It comes from a place of deep self-love, that respect. And, you know, the definition of respect in a real sense is respect, to look twice, to look at again. Mm-hmm. So I respect my looking at it again, honestly. To respect Ooh. the dead is to look at them honestly, to talk about their lives honestly, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this act on a personal level, I see myself going through the same personal revolutions that I'm asking the world to take. I see my human body and I see the body politic in the same way where it's like, oh, I have this particular mystery ailment or this is a health thing. I go shore that up. I go to the doctor. You know what I mean? I mean, the inventory I want for my my body is the inventory I want for the body politic. The addressing of concerns, the maintenance of my body is the maintenance of, uh, you know what I mean? Health is not something you achieve. It's something you maintain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know? it's not so a guarantee. I, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Yeah. Um, so I what are you celebrating, Jonas? Well, I mean, and I, I just, and, no, hold on. I'm gonna ask on you this. A personal level? Well, hold on. See, this is why I'm 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 switching it up like this because I feel like I what you shared about like how you are living in it now and the fullness of this maturation, especially you just having like to give it 
a specific and measurable time period to say, if you look back at the last year, you've mm-hmm. noticed these wins, right? These accomplishments, these changes, this growth that's been exponential based off you being clear on what your purpose is and you being able to identify what it is that you're supposed to do. And a lot of people might not ever get there. When we talk about the collective consciousness and what happens to the people who do not elevate, some of them may not ever be able to, but that's why there are rewards on the higher vibrational frequencies of different um, levels where you access or where you come into consciousness. So your ability to resonate at um, David Hawkins scale of the map of human consciousness goes from like zero to 200 up to like a thousand, which is like enlightenment in this logarithmic metric. So if you are if you are vibrating in your day to day existence at a space of like 500 you automatically rise, you increase or pull up the the vibrational frequency of the, the 50s, 100s, and 200s that are be- beneath you just by your existence. And the, 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 the exponential growth of how many people you lift from mm. your singular effort is right yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So like you having the clarity of that is really just brilliant and, and amazing to witness. I also, for folks who are listening, we are, you're a manifester, I'm a projector. So my projection is to like, you know, literally be a projector and to be like, here's the light. It's like the transparency sheets in third grade where you like lay it down and turn on the light and be like, let's look at all this shiny stuff that's inside. It's amazing. Right. So there's also this like passion and fervor in like how you speak about it. And at the same time, I don't want that to be misconstrued or to be lost on people that there isn't joy because joy is the revolution. Joy is this irrefutable, powerful component. And one of the ways that we access joy almost in ritual is by celebration. So when I ask you the question, what are you celebrating? Like, what does celebration mean to you? And where is that? Where does that live in the movement in this work that we do? I think that's a great question. And, and you said that to me a long time ago that don't forget joy. You know what I mean? And your fervor initially when, you know, you, you saw the emerging fervor, you were like, don't forget <laughs> joy. You know, and I think obviously I would say on a personal level. I experienced a birthday, you know, we could go, I'll owe you a song too. You experienced, yeah. you know, so I took stock of my life and, and I would say that like, I'm celebrating my arrival. I'm celebrating the fact that not only did I get here, but the long and winding path it took to be here, but I'm celebrating the fact that I am here, that this, you know, I think I've always been somebody like we were talking about in the past, gifted and talented program or whatever, sing, you know, it's like, how does one practically apply their abilities to the world to improve it? And many people don't come to that conclusion. You know, many mm. people, many people only get to be self-serving or, or it becomes hollow because they get everything they want. And then they realize that. So I feel like I, I celebrate the fact that this tremendous sense of purpose that I feel it is fulfilling. So I celebrate the fact that I am fulfilled. I genuinely am fulfilled. Am I mm-hmm. satisfied? No, but I am fulfilled. I wake up with fervor and passion and purpose, and I go to bed with fervor and passion and purpose. And it and all of my endeavors are aligned. 
Mm. Everything I do is in alignment with this singular sense of purpose and passion. Now, saying that, it almost seems to like celebrate the collective condition. Like, oh, I'm glad we down bad because I'm, I'm, you know, but that's not it. The reality situation is that I don't endeavor to be a career liberator or something, a career, uh, I want to address the situation and then live in my life. So like in my personal life, I'm making, I made the album that I made and then the current album I'm making, like it's a celebration of joy, like in all the political affirmations and all this other stuff, they come in, they come out. But the reality is like, I was like, I want to make these kind of songs so I can make these kind of songs. And then I'm going mm -hmm. to make these kind of songs. And then the world began to assist me. Like I said, you know, deals gave me great beats. People are giving me great beats. I, George Michael, who became this incredible inspiration to me. It's like my own love and care for black people and black liberation has does not dull my world or make it harsh or make it austere or anything like that. It makes it, it beautifies it. Mm -hmm. My appreciation for all races and all people and their cultural contributions. A lot of times that would happen. Oh, I thought you was all about black people, blah, blah, blah. No, I, that is not incongruent. I love and celebrate all human beings. I am primarily concerned with the prosperity of black people, mm -hmm. but primarily does not mean exclusively. Yeah. So like my ability to still enjoy and ingest the culture at large, process it, reverberate it out while still maintaining a perpetual and constant political struggle and not allowing that to sully it, not allowing, I smile, I laugh, I have a great time. I'm the funniest guy I know, you know what I mean? But I, it, shit is real out here. And it's Word. those two, the duality exists, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and so I feel like I celebrate the fact that at 41, like I, so many mechanisms are in place for, for this to be sustainable. My efforts are sustainable. My life is sustainable. I'm, I'm at what many could consider a crux point, the middle. Mm -hmm. I look back, I like what I see. I look ahead, I like what I see. I look down, I look up, I like what I see. Mm -hmm. I celebrate that very much so. Ooh, know? yes, I love it. Like, first of all, shout out to, like, one of the things that brings me great joy is watching Black people, Black men especially, but really all Black people age. Mm -hmm. There's something so beautiful about being able to witness the growth of a human being, the trajectory of life, the like when you see and observe, just witness the changes and the development and the growth in, in myself and my peers, like people who I've known for like us for 20 years that I'm like, I see you. And I see you in this growth and I do, I, I notice the sustainability of it. Like we were talking before we started recording today about our skin, right? And mm -hmm. our skincare routine or just caring enough about ourselves to care about our skin and it being reflected in our complexion and how we just show up in the world, not because of, you know, vanity or filters or whatever. And those things certainly exist as well. But just to be able to live life um, and to have a, a full spectrum understanding um, of self and awareness of self and to be guided and directed in such a way that feels that it's living into your destiny um, mm -hmm. is, is just a high honor. And I mean, it, it, 
it reminds me to be grateful to my ancestors, um, to honor our ancestors to, with respect, to pay respect of looking twice at the work of our ancestors because our lives are not as hard as they as they could be because of the lives that our ancestors lived before us. So it's, imp- it's crazy to think about. It's really like, crazy to think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, so the, the fact that we get to sit here and do this work and have these conversations and upload this to the internet and, you know, distribute do whatever we choose to do with it, just because we had the idea to do so that in and of itself is liberation. Like there is freedom in that. Like when I talk about I was talking to a group of women um, in Butterfly House in my group coaching program last fall, and um, I used Fred a clip of Fred Hampton's um, "Are You a Revolutionary?" I am a revolutionary, and the 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 question is like, can you say that with your chest? Can you mm-hmm. say like and. I can say that because 22-year-old Fred Hampton could say that before he was, like, assassinated and sleeping in his bed. You know what I mean? Like, for saying that he was a revolutionary. You know what I mean? And so there is there is joy comes... My grandmother used to say joy comes in the morning. And... Not hmm. in the not in the morning, like M O R N I N G M O U R. You know what That's I mean? A bar. Like That's a bar. Joy comes in the morning, and I never understood that. I'm like, when you wake up, you're supposed to wake up happy, but I don't wake up happy. That's not what it meant. Morning is the period that happens after grieving, right? And so after you grieve then you mourn. And that's paying respect to the dead. That's celebrating the times that you did have, the the, the wins that you have made, um, the accomplishments, the things that you have achieved, the parts where you were in some really scary shit and still found a space to just crack up laughing. Like, <laughs> like can you believe we made it through the summer of 2004? Like what? You know what I mean? That that is where the joy comes from. And I think that it's, it's a sustaining factor in our ability to resist. And I think in, you know, organizing toward black joy is a part of this articulation. And it's a reason that I constantly remind you, like, how are you having joy? You sound frustrated in the tone of your voice. Where is the happiness? Like, how are you feeling? Like, checking in with our emotions and, and all of that really shapes up in these really beautiful ways. So I I just want to celebrate you for doing this work in earnest. I think that that's why this framework to discuss Black liberation is so important because it really speaks to the... what. What does a, a revolutionary, a liberator, somebody who resists, resist, what do they have to do to take care of themselves? Mm-hmm. What do they have yeah. to do to maintain themselves? Because you cannot forget that. Like so many times, particularly young revolutionaries, they were like, I want to burn myself out for the struggle. Like self-destruction mm-hmm. is one of the wildest things about youth is the way self-destruction is codified into youth to where mm-hmm. we want to burn out. We want to, we want to, we want to die young. We want to, and leave a pretty corpse, all this stuff. It's this weird impulse to self-destruct that I think when you get past it, if you're lucky and like when you're talking about the beauty of aging, if you're lucky to get past that, you get to this other phase where you're like, now you're concerned about sustenance. Now you're concerned mm-hmm. about maintaining. Now you're concerned about self-construction, reconstruction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you become, you be, that's what I'm talking about. The world then bequeaths you your true great struggle 
that that will take the rest of your life. And you realize then, if I'm going to be fighting this for as long as possible, I need to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And I need to prioritize myself. And, and I think I want to speak to a couple of things that you said earlier that are like still bouncing around in my head. When you initially said, there was something you said about who do I have to be? And I, and I thought about in the phrase of like, what, or what is the one thing in the way in, the, in this mental state? And, and, and I go back to the tenet of healing is possible. The very notion of believing healing is possible mm-hmm. is this, that is the primary thing in, in, in front of so many people. And so you extrapolate that. We talk about this in the body politic, the idea that racism is a solvable problem. Mm-hmm. They believe is impossible. And then when we talked about you do up to what you can do, and then you kind of put it into the world and let the world does what it does. To me, that's the magic is real element. That's where it's yeah. like the universe. Because when we define magic, I define it as the unexplainable, the unseen. I, well, I define I define magic as making making apparent what has previously been unseen right so when you talk about Mm -hmm. the the world or the the collective being fertile soil the seed that you are planting in writing this this legislation and articulating this message in this work the seed that you're planting when a seed is underground you don't know what it's going to become you don't know if it's going to grow up and be okra or rice or a rose bush or wh- whatever, right? Like you, you don't know what a seed is, but it you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Shout out, my grandmother is in here very heavy today. Um, but you have mm-hmm. this faith. You plant the seed. You cover it in the soil. It's dark. It needs to be nurtured. Maybe it gets left alone. We don't know whatever conditions it goes through. But think about all of the things that are happening in this process of germination. Things that will happen and take place. Magic. It's magic. Magic. It's magic. That is the work of magic. And then to watch it come to fruition, to go like from an, you know, and yeah, photosynthesis is magic. You know what I mean? To an like, oak tree. It's 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 the magic. It's the sun, the sky, the firmament, it is earth, it is this rock that is spinning around in this universe um that we are tethered to by this invisible force that is in, in existing and revolving around a, a, st- a ball of fire in the sky in an ever-expanding universe where we are like we are the grain of sand on the grain of sand on the, you know, the elephant's butt on the beetle dung. You know what I mean? Like, and we get to have this experience where we can be connected with one another in interpersonal relational ways and to be in good character and to be heart centered and heart facing and to, to really have this concept of, ourselves the love is the answer piece Mm. is like the any any question any problem can be solved with love Mm. Mm. i believe that i believe that i believe that and i think the fact that 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 comes across as very difficult for people to process is a problem but that's where you go back to magic we articulate that we because i believe that that's how we're approaching all of this the system has taught us, so 
the the act of anti-blackness and and white supremacy racism page it 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 functions to dehumanize right and so in that function of dehumanization we talked about the elder who wants is a spirit not you know who's who's existing as a ghost of herself because she was raised to be a negro and this is her reality i i'm still pouring out compassion for this sister i, I, don't, know, I, I know i know yeah i didn't even tell you the worst one you i told you the worst <laughs> one but that she's number two there's a worst but it was the worst moment we don't even got to talk about it now but whatever go on we'll compassionate yeah, for, for another show because I feel like August twelfth is going down in history. Like <laughs> August, but I think that we have been, you know, who was it? Malcolm X who said like, "Who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate your hair?" Right? Like this absence of love, the the deep the the way that we have just like been trauma has robbed us of our humanity. The trauma of anti-Blackness continues to rob us of our humanity and our ability to have self-respect, to look twice at ourselves and to look at what we see with loving eyes, to replace judgment with compassion, to be able to really examine ourselves as like a, 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 a sum of all of our parts, as opposed to just that one really bad thing that happened that time. And it really takes me back to that Morales quote from the top of the show. Like, we must get to a place where we believe that trauma is not the end of our story. We are not Mm. the sum of all of our traumas. We are the sum of all of our parts. And the fact that we have survived all of those things that we thought was going to kill us is a a cause for celebration, right? Mm. And so when I think about Audre Lorde and Lucille Clifton and Gwendolyn Brooks and like the bell hookses of the world and Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Hill Collins and, you know, um, Alice Walker and like all of the black women, we could just name like who have been saying this because they learned to love themselves. Intosaki Shange said, "I I saw God in myself and I loved her fiercely. Like, Love is the answer, but it has to be for yourself first. And until you witness that you are a miracle who is the culmination, you are a seed that was planted in some invisible soil generations ago, that you were an egg in your mother's stomach while your mother was gestating in your grandmother's womb. And here you are sitting three generations later having a conversation once you realize and accept that that miracle is true about yourself, it becomes impossible to refute that miracle existing in every other living human. Mm. That's that's how we become. That's how we reclaim our humanity. That's how mm. we get back to square one. Is to mm. it just accept the reality that we are the magic. We are the love. We are worthy. This is our birthright. The All miracles. Of these we are miracles. Yeah, we're miracles. Every single one of us. 9,000 mm-hmm. other people had to live before you got here. Mm-hmm. Minimum. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. what? You're a miracle. And you didn't I, die of a plague. We, you know what I mean? Like, with it's the, like. With the, with, the, with the generational responsibility, too, that's what it makes me lead to, too, is it's like, it's, it's not just a miracle you've been bequeathed, but it's like, how do you celebrate that miracle? How do you propagate that miracle? And how do you, like, really give thanks and grace for it? And I think that that's by doing the work. You go out yeah. into the world, and, and and that's that's a form of celebration. The yeah. work in and of itself is a form of celebration. We make it joyous. We make the work joyous. And I think being Always. creatives or being a creative, I think 
you know, when we talk about, when people talk about revolution, they always talk about revolutionary art. They always talk about, because I do believe that the creative component, my mind as a creative, primarily creative, is a valid contributor. It's, it's not, I'm not a master of statecraft, political analysis, what I'm a creator, but I endeavor to learn and educate myself on all political things, but still through the lens of a creator. And, and by doing the work of creating, I celebrate and appreciate and, and really hold that miracle that I am and the generation that I'm a part of and the generations that gave this to me sacred. Mm -hmm. That's how I do right by it. I love that. So <clears throat> this next segment, <laughs> we talked a little bit earlier about what you're reading mm -hmm. and I want to share in the spirit of joy and celebration and having fun. Um, I talk, I, I mean, I, I read a lot of things. We talked about literacy being um, something that's constantly transforming. It's constantly changing our concept of lit literacy. So when we talk about reading, we're not doing that from a, a, um, a judgmental and hierarchical way. Like I think that reading books is important. I like to read books. You like to read books. I like to read a certain type of book. Like that's fine, but that ain't for everybody. Some folks would rather read blog posts or meme ministries, or maybe they listen to audiobooks or have different ways that they access information. So this isn't to say, this is to say that literacy means a lot of different things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Words mean things y'all, right? Um, but what are you reading? I like to say that I read books, bitches, and energy. Okay. So uh, listen, <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious this week, what are you reading? Well, you know, I think that's a great, uh, question because or the way you phrase it, because I've been audio booking. I read mm -hmm. two incredible books this week. One of them was Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. And the second one was Blood in My Eyes. Luckily, at mm -hmm. my job, I, I'm capable of just sitting there listening for hours on end to things. So I was able to adjust these books relatively quickly. But, I, um, you know, I have been in a voracious reading, I don't know what you would call it, expedition, you know? And so I'm... I would say those two books mm. were really important to me because the articulation of the revolution is is an intellectual endeavor. Revolution mm -hmm. is an intellectual endeavor. It is an ideological endeavor. So I must look to the scholars and the great writers of revolutionary theory and just read what they're thought and and they're they're dense and they they they're they're extremely like What's the word I want to use? Like, uh, you know, educational, not in a sense, but like uh, curriculum. But, you know, it's, it's, it's academic, uh, academic, maybe? academic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely academic. You know what I mean? They, they read like textbooks, you know, yeah. and, and we might, and, 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 and theorem and all this other stuff. But ultimately at the end of the day is it's, it's, it's what's above me. I reach for, but most of it is coming right at me and articulating sentiments that I'm experiencing in my own mind. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, he said that out loud. Oh, wow, he said that out loud. But also, in this endeavor, I look to people who might contradict and also look to people who will affirm to make this better. And I feel like mm -hmm. those are two people, particularly George Jackson and Franz Fanon, who might take umbrage with my approach, who might be like, it's foolhardy or whatever, and, and, and 
something of critiques of the idea of reparations, the idea of seeking justice through legal means, seeking justice through the system and the institution. These are two people who articulate incredible arguments for that entire futility of such endeavor. But it doesn't deter me. It doesn't make me think, oh, I'm wrong. It's just, how do I enhance this, you know? And then I mean, as far as... May our ancestors on. may our ancestors be pleased, right? Like, I don't think... Yeah. Um, I don't think that either... I don't get the impression that Franz Fanon or George Jackson would take umbrage to you wanting to raise the dialogue around Black liberation. Like, no, that, does, that don't they even translate, you know? Wouldn't. Yeah. Right. So maybe my methodology, maybe, the, maybe. The George Jackson maybe book not. recommended. I mean, I've, I've, I have tussled with Fanon before and Fanon rounds with the book and being like, this is so much. Um, I know. That's what I mean. Dense. Dense. Very dense. But, and I, I have not read Blood in My Eye, um, mostly because I'm in a place with my reading right now where I'm, I'm, I'm really protective of like my energy and what I'm taking in. So the two books that I've been reading this week, one is A Year in White, um, which is uh, the, for cultural newcomers in the uh, Lukumi tradition and faith. So I'm in, I just went through um, an Ocha ceremony to um, be initiated into Lukumi as a priestess. And so as a result of that, like my whole life is changing. Um, I'm dressed in white and will be for the next year and a week. And so I've been reading about the the challenges with that on a cultural level, because even inside um, the Lukumi faith, even though it's based off a Yoruba, uh, West African, Nigerian religious practice, which is the oldest um, recorded religion in the world, um, there is still a great amount of anti-Blackness inside that or maybe anti-blackness and um, xenophobia, maybe perhaps I would I would I would say inside the, really? the faith in in the religion from um, from some of our uh, Cuban relatives who just you know I don't know there's like a lot of us versus them in the in the spiritual traditions of Lukumi Ifa Hoodoo Vudun like there's there are some cultural wars embedded in that, that I think are also a product of the global impact of anti-Blackness. So I'm reading this book. Ruins everything. Ruins everything. Listen, listen, racism is never surprising and always disappointing. Um, But the second book that (laughs) I am reading is this really beautiful book called Poetry as Spellcasting. Um, And it's poems, essays, and prompts for manifesting... um, uh, what is the full title? Poems, Essays, and Prompts for Manifesting. Uh, it has a long title that Kindle is not showing me. For Manifesting Liberation and Reclaiming Power. Um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, there's journal prompts and writing, but it's a collaborative piece, kind of like um, an anthology with between Tamiko Byer, Destiny Hemphill, and Lisbeth White that was born out of um, the the 2020 era of COVID um, and looking toward liberation and and collective spellcasting and the power to manifest and, and how to create tools um, 
that are really empowering through our writing. So that's what I've been reading. Um, and I have, I, I have looked at Mein Kampf, um, but it's weird because like, mein I live Kampf, in, the Hitler the, I'm in the DC. No, not Mein Kampf. Uh, what's the one? Das Kapital. Das Kapital. Sorry, wrong white dude. Oh, like, my bad. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about I can't I'm talking about I can't My bad. Uh, and, you know, a little a little Hitlerian philosophy too, you know, just to round it all out. No, that's why we got no. we got we gotta edit that out. We gotta edit that out. No, I I was looking for <laughs> I was looking oh, for joy. Das that's Capital. some joy right there. Right. Yeah. I was looking for Das Kapital, but um in the DC uh in the Washington Library Network, there isn't an actual copy of the book that's um that is in their system in overdrive. So I thought that that was really interesting, but um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's a you know there's, a, there's an that's one of the best of the examples. Book. Yeah, there's an assessment of the book that's available where it's another author's, um, what is it? It's, uh, there's an, uh, another book that uh, that is written by Francis Ween that is, uh, an evaluation of Marx's Das Kapital, but it's not Das Kapital. I yeah, thought that was really interesting. The Wretched of the Earth is also a kind of a critique of Marxism. He he questions a lot, or he makes some very valid critiques of Marxism. And I, I think that's one of the things about it is like, wars many wars world wars have been fought over that book das kapital you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. to me it really sort of laid out for me this is what people fight about you know it's like ideas like it's literally been for the past hundred years or whatever a war between capitalism and we can't even truly identify the scholar maybe adam smith or somebody and marxism and the book this guy wrote and all of the crap that came out of it is literally what, you know, is the great, one of the biggest, it's ultimately the preeminent political struggle of our life in terms of imperialist. It's two empires going to war over books, you know? So like, that's one of the things I keep trying to, I say to people is it's like, they're talking about you. <laughs> they are books. talking about you, yeah. You know what I mean? And if if you don't care for any other reason, and I think like one of the things that you really said is like these books are dense and you got to grapple with them sometimes. And sometimes they may feel like intimidating. Like I'm about to maybe read this book by Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, about existentialism. That's definitely going to oh. literally beat me, beat me down. But that's yeah. the endeavor, you know? I got to have my dictionary right next to me. I got to have, you know what I mean? And it's just like, you literally have to elevate yourself by reaching above. So I think that with the books, like, they build upon each other. Like, I don't necessarily know if I'd have been capable of reading Fanon had I not read previous books or, you know what I mean, even Black Power by Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Ture now, you know what I mean? Or just other books or just even other analyses of Marx and other philosophy. Like, it all builds upon each other. But I I do think that the reading of these books, something transformative happens to you. And if the harder it is to read, I genuinely believe the more transformation occurs. Mm -hmm. I I believe that, you know? 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, you got to be yeah. selective. Like you said, uh, you be selective with, because I'll give you an example, reading these books by George Jackson and, and Frantz Fanon, which kind of up, like very clearly advocate for violent revolution and overthrowing, mm-hmm. like to be able to read them and have the, the, the ability to like, to see them and analyze them and observe them and then sit and process. And so, you know, I think, sometimes you don't even know what's happening. You're just Mm -hmm. like blown away by something. And then it got to resonate with you. But like the transference of ideas and writing and all this other stuff is like, I genuinely believe it's required. If anybody wants to step into the sphere and join us and have these conversations, like they're always welcome, but their input is considered more valid. The more research they've done, the more of their own hours they put into, the more reading and learning and studying they've done on their own time, they are more valuable contributors to said conversation. If you're just yeah. spitballing it and talking about assumptions and hypotheses, is it valid? Yes, but it is less valid. Yeah, less absolutely. Valid. I think, I mean, I'm I'm going to move us into, at that point, move, move us into, um, it ain't that deep. Like, one I'm of the. I'm interested to see what. Yeah, what you got. <laughs> well, because you know, one of the things that you know, as a as a black feminist, black womanist, um, just a black girl in the world, right? One of the ways that patriarchy, misogyny, noir, white supremacy impacts me and has impacted me in my life is like being an organic intellectual who is also smart as shit, who is also educated and and trained for a million different reasons. Um, However, I came to be this, this iteration or version of myself just as a method of survival or my, my survival necessitated my intellect. I had to literally learn how to navigate systems in order to be in them, but always had a a really natural curiosity um, and and a, an awareness of my magic. I always felt it and knew that it was there. I've also always been drawn to like, I've been articulate. I run my mouth. I started t- talking when I was nine months old. Like this is what I do, right? But in the world, mm-hmm. my desire to go deep, my desire to extrapolate the the root cause of issues, my desire to, my tendency toward being a solution-oriented person um, I really have a deep desire to make beauty and make meaning of things, um, mm-hmm. just by, just Same. by acknowledging them. Right. And like some of that I think mm-hmm. is our Libra air sign stuff, but yeah. at the same time, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is just like the way that I'm wired. Right. That's my, mm-hmm. that's a part of my destiny being on the planet. The challenge is walking around in this skin suit or around a bunch of normies or NPCs or square-headed Negroes or whatever, I often get my, my passion is often dampened or quelled by folks who think that I'm doing too much. It ain't that Ooh. deep. It ain't even that deep. It ain't even all that serious. You're taking it too serious. You're it's not mm-hmm. that deep. Get mm-hmm. over it. Get over yourself. Mm-hmm. Like there's this constant messaging that happens to me and I see happen and repeated to black women through my peer groups, through my ancestry, through just having eyes and being a conscious human being on the planet. I witness it happen and play out in all these ways. And 
I can derive depth and meaning from anything. I think that everything means something, right? So in this part, I Mm -hmm. want to talk about the ways in which a seemingly, maybe, and this is, I don't even want to use the term microaggressions because that pisses me off too. And because it is, it's not micro, it's an aggression. It's an act of violence. It's death by a million paper clips, damn it. So like, or paper cuts. So like, I don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? Like whatever. But Mm -hmm. so today I want to talk about what happened at the Beyonce concert on this edition of it ain't that deep. And I want to invite you. Is this a personal experience? This is a yeah. personal experience? It's a, it's okay. a me thing. This is okay. a personal experience. Okay. I was thinking about okay. it. I had a couple of things that I was like, maybe we could talk about this. Maybe we could talk about that. But I feel like I want to talk about this thing that happened with a group of white girls. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. So what happens? Let, I'm going to start with the story. And then yes, you do. you tell me whether or not you know where you, you bugging, see a space for it ain't that deep. Um, okay. So we're at the Beyonce show um, in New Orleans. It's amazing. Is epic. We have had um there with my best friends um, and my niece, my best friend's daughter, who is celebrating her 18th birthday. I'm celebrating my birthday. We have all waited to get here to this moment to Beyonce, which was going to be her last show until she added the Kansas City show. So it was a big deal to be at Beyonce. Um, There are no bad seats in the Beyonce house, but we were definitely up in the 600s. So these are not like floor seats. We're up at the tippity top, but again, no bad seats at Beyonce. It was an amazing experience. I love it. However, behind us, there were two rows of white girls um, who were like together in like a cluster. I would say maybe there were about eight of them in between these two rows. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we go into the seat. I didn't really notice them until I got a drink spilled on me. Like got splashed in my back with a drink and was like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Nobody likes that at a concert. But... All right, I let it rock. Wow, because it ain't that deep, right? Um, uh. So <laughs> you're at a you're at a concert, you're at a show. It ain't that deep. Okay, okay. Then maybe like ten minutes later, she spills the drink on me again, more liquid, and so I turn myself completely around, like back to the stage and face her and say, hi, you spilled your drink on me. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, it's cool. And she was like, I did not mean to do that. I said, you actually did it twice. And she was like, oh my God. And I was like, it's cool. Just don't let it happen a third time. Okay. She's like, oh my God. Uh Okay. I think we're done. I like, I, I feel like I'm done with this moment because it ain't that deep. I, Beyonce is on stage, right? And this is as much energy as I have for you at this very, like, Beyonce is, the Renaissance tour is Black and queer on purpose. It is a celebration mm-hmm. of queer Black 
life and reality and the divine feminine that like visually aesthetically conceptually sonically all of those things it is house music it is 1980s it is uncle johnny made my dress it is black liberation it is all like all of those things it is matriarchal her daughter is on stage with her we are in new orleans this is black as hell but there is a white woman on my shoulder who keeps pouring liquor on me and I am annoyed, but I let it go because it ain't that deep. You got to let you're in a stadium with thousands of people, Ebony. It's not that big of a deal. The time goes on in the show. Um, we get to a place where auntie had to go to the bathroom. I had to go pee. So I go to the bathroom, come right back. As I come back, one of the, the girls that was sitting next to the girl who spilled the drink on me is coming up the stairs past me. When I get there, I see that there's a little bit of a kerfuffle happening in our row and my homegirl is pissed and all the white girls are now like chit chatting across the, and I'm like, what's going on? My best friend, Erica says to me, they spilled a, she poured her drink on Monet and I'm like. On her daughter? No, on our other friend. So we were like flanking. I was we're flanking her. So okay. all the way inside the row. So she poured uh-huh. a drink on Monet. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go and get Monet. Like, I'm going to go in back toward the seat and I'm going to check on Monet. We had my niece come out because she's the youngest. And I go to get closer to Monet. Because who knows what's about to pop off. When I see her, literally, like, the back of her neck, there's, like, her hair is, like, wet, like, stuck to her neck wet from how much beer. And so Monet is like, this bitch poured a Bud Light down my back. She was like, poured, like poured. She's like, I'm soaking wet and I smell like beer. Like I'm wet down the back of my shirt into my skirt is how much beer one of the girls had, had spilled on her. This is a, do you see that look that you're that, that experience? Cause this is a moment that could go a million different ways. Like the carelessness of this woman who is not aware of her personal space and her body inside this space or is so aware that she would not have control of her. Like you're up in the 600, like any, anything could have happened. It could have been an atrocity. Folks could have gone like, <laughs> like atrocity. Yeah. literally, you know what I mean? Like in the middle of a Beyonce concert. And so I immediately go in and do, I check in with Monet and I'm like, what do you want to do? And she was like, well, I, t- I want to beat her ass. She was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I'm going to take off my earrings also because the girls are still like, like bickering, cackling, doing like the, the apology. Oh my God, what hold happened? On, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to understand this. At this point, was it perceived to be intentional? Yes. The perception was that it was intentional because it was so much beer that was spilled. Like she okay. like but they were denying. Uh, no, it wasn't were, intentional. It wasn't yeah, intentional. It was an accident. She's okay. really drunk. We're so sorry. Oh my god, are you okay? Oh, what happened? It's not like so, but there's like now four of the eight of them are like chattering at the same time while Monet is like just trying to pull her shit together so we can get back to the concert. Like, cause Monet is now making all kinds of choices about how she would like to govern herself given what has just happened to her, right? And justifiably so. 
The person who was next to Monet had also been experiencing these girls while in the fuck out at the show and was also and like- that was also your friend or that was just no, a stranger? No, it was just a stranger. This brother was like, I got your back. They've been getting on my nerves since we've been okay. here. What a, It's whatever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what's mm-hmm. good up in the 600s at the Superdome? And I'm like, this is nuts that this is what's happening right now. And I don't know. I'm sure maybe there could have been- 10,000 other iterations of that going on, but it was just so interesting that in that row, that was the energy that got triggered by whiteness. It was, it was whiteness at work. Well, what ends up happening, so this is where it's the, it's not that deep thing comes into effect. So I start telling the girls, I'm like, y'all stop talking. I was like, stop. Don't say anything else to her. Stop talking. Like, please shut up. Like, we're done here. And I said, this to is Monet, to was, the white women. Yeah. To the white women. The white I'm girl. like, okay. I'm like, Monet, I was like, we have given them enough attention. Beyonce is on stage right now. Like, shut it down. Yeah. Let's not. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm just trying to help. I'm I'm helping. I, I'm like, you're not being, it's not helpful. Like, just let it go. Is what I'm telling them. Like, stop. Mm-hmm. On the second row back, another very tall white woman stands up and reaches down and starts pointing and yelling at me to, that it's not that serious. It's not even that serious. This is America. We're at a fucking concert. Get over it. Sit down. Like she, So now she's chastising me from another row up, telling me that it's not that serious. I <laughs> I my life my choices now are flashing because now I'm like but it is that serious and also this is a distraction this is where whiteness functions as a distraction and a flex of authority and um and this this establishment of superiority like the dynamic of her standing up over us and like pointing down the whole thing Erica who is on the outer edge comes out of the row and walks up two flights of stairs and is like, this ain't what you want. Like, but we're not, cause we can all, what, what, like, listen, we're, this is, and also you're like at the top of a stadium. So it's kind of like, it's just not safe for so many reasons. It was an, it was, uh-huh. a, um, the 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 lack of safety, the violation of the sacred sacredness of being in the space and having joy and having it be celebration was just disrupted because of disrespect that went unacknowledged and was excused without um without honesty. Like there wasn't there wasn't an apology. The girl that that was drunk and spilt it was the one who I'd walked past on the stairs, so she left. Um it was like three she minutes left? and 30. Yeah, she left and didn't come back. And eventually, by the, so this was all happened during Beyonce's song, Heated, um, <laughs> which is kind of ironic in and of itself. But again, mm-hmm. it ain't that deep, right? But this is all going on during Heated. And um, by the time the song was over, both rows of white girls had left and no violence ensued. And Monet put her earrings back on and it was like, fine. But the upset... <laughs> The interruption in the evening, I believe, is what happens 
when white people who benefit from whiteness or white privilege find themselves in a minoritized position and are trying to assert dominance or establish themselves in a way it was like they were glitching at the at the need to take up space in a in a place that there was no space for them to take up. It was like, you get to participate and be a part of, or you don't get to be here. And I don't think that they understood how to be a part of or participate in a way that felt whole because they were without preoccupied the by their assumption whiteness. of centrality without the assumption of centrality. That's what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm, when that did mm-hmm. not happen. And I mean, like you're at Beyonce drinking Bud Lights, you know what I mean? Like, what are you even doing here? Like the one chick was had her feet up on the back of my niece's chair, like barefoot in a stadium. Like, girl, what? Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? But that assumption of centrality, it was not about them. I think it got to be too big, too black, too bold, too amazing, um, too beautiful. And it caused a series of short circuits where their privilege wasn't working for them. And eventually they left. There was still like an hour and a half left in the show, or at least an hour. Left I got, in the show. I got a bunch of thoughts. I mean, I think the first thing that I think about is the historical context of new Orleans and, and being in the Superdome in the yeah. 600s. I think about that right away. And I think about, but I think about these are perhaps Louisiana women, Louisiana white women, which is perhaps one of the most virulent arbiters of white supremacy from a historical perspective. It's in their freaking bones. You know what I mean? So there's that. Second off, I I think what's interesting that you phrased it as a malevolence, but I always use this term, the myopia of whiteness, which ah. is to say they are literally incapable of recognizing the world around them. It is it is it is one of the most unique elements of the myopia of whiteness is how your unawares, your unawareness doesn't spell certain doom to you. You can mm-hmm. just buffoon around and fumble around and walk mm-hmm. into what amounts to sacred cultural spaces, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is frankly a great way to articulate a Beyonce concert. You know what yeah. I mean? It is a sacred cultural space, right? Yes. For blackness, for black people, for queer people. And your myopia prevents you from a recognizing that, Mm-hmm. being aware of that, but your myopia is reinforced by you rarely, if ever, suffer consequences for it. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like what you end up seeing is white people going to sacred places all over the world and defacing monuments and going into, because, and this is what we talk about. Anti-blackness is killing us all. Yeah. Because the reality is her myopia. She's about to get tossed. <laughs> but, but just think about the entirety of the situation, the violence of the situation that emerged was Rooted in like, I don't understand what's going on because you're allowed to walk around the world not understanding what's going on and it still works out in your favor, such as the myopia of whiteness. So I definitely think about it in this scenario of like, when you talk about the necessity of violence, Mm. is that unfortunately, radicalization rarely occurs without calamity, without tragedy. And radicalization could go two ways. Like for instance- these are maybe I would white women at a they they might be conservatives, but I would venture to say they're liberals, right? I would oh, venture sure. to say they're, 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 they're probably liber- yeah, they're yeah, Beyonce. Beyonce, they're liberals, right? They're white yeah. liberals, bro. So they're at the Beyonce show, liberal reformists, thinking everything is sweet, 
And the reality is like, if they had gotten their asses beat, that would have been the only impetus they need to be mega now, radical, or because how much more realistic is it for them to go, why did I get my ass beat? Let me unpack all of the ways that anti-blackness and white supremacy have intermingled into me getting my ass beat. No, mm -hmm. they just black people bad and put on their red cap. Mm -hmm. Radicalization mm -hmm. preset by calamity that mm -hmm. it makes them immediately realize where they are aligned and who they are. But if you set that in the context of the deep and bloody and slavery South in a state without a minimum wage, in a state with Angola, in a state with like literally the perhaps the singular most blatant example of America not caring about black people in, in most recent history. You know what I mean? Like, like mm -hmm. to the point where it's like, you just realize that it's like, sometimes a bitch do need to get knocked out. A bitch do need to get rocked because the reality is like, unfortunately, to be the arbiter of said quote unquote revolutionary justice would be, you would suffer the consequences. Right. That's the thing black people have to consider is we cannot just distribute retributive violence because the institution will use the full might and weight of its force. So we have to be pacifists. And, and this is just incredible opportunity for a learning moment in the form of violence that they needed, that they deserved. The universe was trying to give them. But the myopia of whiteness that is reinforced by the institute is allowing them to avoid that. So they just get to leave. They just get to walk away. And then to go, those black women were really freaking out and they don't really even put this shit together. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm saying. The myopia of whiteness is the mental health crisis yeah, that they're well. all going through that is preventing them from enjoying the fullness of the world. And, 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 and like one of the things that you see in the most clearest manifestations is why are black people mad? Why are <laughs> black people mad? The myopia oh my whiteness will let you go. Leftists are trying to divide us. The Democrats are trying to divide us. Like you will really sit and look at this nation's history and say, well, we did away with slavery 150 years ago. We lived to Jim Crow 60 years ago. That's not that long. You know what I mean? Like we live in mass incarceration. We live in over a prison industrial complex. We live in the age of the 13th amendment. So the myopia of whiteness prevents white people from fixing the problems that harm them. They can't. They are incapable. They have been rendered inert from years of fattening by institutional systemic privilege. It is incumbent upon the disenfranchised to liberate the enfranchised from their own oppressive enfranchisement. And sometimes that means <laughs> getting punched in your fucking face. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> So I just got a visual of like grabbing someone and like tossing them over the, the banister of the 600s to be like, I liberate you from your own myopic whiteness. The enfranchisement of the whiteness, the great liberator, the necessity of revolutionary violence. Yo, that's the, that's the Alabama brawl and the white folding chair, right? Like that's the folding chair. In and of itself, that's why it, like, that shit was that deep. That shit was that deep when they, it was we that watched deep. that shit, and it was like that they will go down in history. August fifth, I'll always remember August fifth. You know what I mean? You, mm -hmm. you know, like I'll yeah. always remember it because it was really the moment where it's like, I think so many times you might see videos, and and like if you go down Twitter, which is a hellscape. There's a large virulent contingent of white supremacist fake accounts, and some of them will be dedicated to showing acts of violence 
against mob violence against white people by black people. And then, you know, oh, what was the white person? This and, and and it's always edited judiciously to show whatever particular incident invariably caused by white people mm-hmm. to get them thrashed. Mm-hmm. This was one of a few months we got to see the entirety mm-hmm. of the scenario. And yeah. so what you really start to see is like this notion that all of the violence that has been brought upon white people by virtue of their actions, generations preceding them, befalling later generations, the aggression, the anger, it's, it is the literal definition of the chickens coming home to roost. It is the, and if white people want to be able to enjoy and have commingle and commune with black people, they must repair and do reparations. Without that, it is a situation fraught with violence, a situation fraught with tension because they're attempting to circumvent this clear and utter atrocity and tragedy and historical crime and act like it just didn't fucking happen. It's like gaslighting. And it's like, why do black people, blah, 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 blah. Every single question you have about black people in this country can be addressed to why the fuck are black people even here? And why the f- what the fuck happened to create this dynamic? So you really have this situation of myopia again. Myopia again, where it's literally like, I can't see. Take your fucking hands out of your eyes. I can't see. You know what I mean? The shit. Nothing works that way. Nothing works that way. What happened in the past affects today, and they're just expecting black people to just forgive and forget. That's yeah. not how shit works. That's yeah. not how any system works. Literally, there will be karmic repercussions. And the only way to circumvent them is to take accountability as a nation, as a world, as a conglomerate of nations. To take yeah. accountability before the certain doom that erupts from the necessity of revolutionary violence. And this is when you get to talking about Fanon and George Jones and all this shit. And you put it in the microcosm of this instance. That's why Fanon was saying... You got to be violent. That's why George Jackson was saying you got to be violent because unfortunately, I do not believe in the situation. The lesson was learned. Now, am I advocating for you to have engaged in violence? No, I'm tremendously enthused that you stood above the fray. But what I'm saying is I do hope they are met with the, the violence necessary to liberate them from the oppression of their enfranchisement. I do wish that for them. I'm still wishing the best for them. I hope, I hope they get you have to the be deserve. You the day you deserve. The day you deserve. They need to get beat up. And and again, if this radicalizes them into further white supremacy, then that's where they already were. But yeah. occasionally somebody gets their head knocked and they learn their lesson. And if it's one out of a hundred, two out of a hundred, three out of a hundred, it was worth knocking all one hundred heads. And 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 that's what I'm saying is it's like I think the necessity of violence exists here. But it's not just bloodshed. It is intellectual. It is emotional. It is spiritual. A form of violence that Black people must engage in in this form of revolutionary act where it's like unyielding and perpetual pushing of the line. There can be no comfort. You cannot enjoy. You can't get box braids. You can't enjoy the rap music. You can't do anything in my presence until Black people are repaired. I will literally, like, even in the context of somebody like George Michael, who was took to task for being a white man in this R&B space and winning all the awards and stuff. Ultimately, it was one of the things that drove him crazy. His next album is Listen Without Prejudice because motherfuckers is like, what? You won the best R&B award over Bobby Brown? Like, what? What is going on? You're not even an R&B artist. So it's like he himself is starting to see, I can't even enjoy and make music I want to make and enjoy black music and be part without all of a sudden becoming either a, a 
poster child and oh, an, an inadvertent advocate of white supremacy or a tool of white supremacy. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so the myopia of whiteness will let white people go. This problem will solve itself. All they can do is dismantle. All they can do is when the idea is proposed to them, do you want black people to be free? They can say yes or no. And if they say no, we're better for it. If they say yes, we're better for it. But this offer they can't refuse, it needs to be proposed to them in such as a way as to where it's like, no, we're not going to talk about anything else. We're not going to address anything else. Nothing else matters until you answer this singular question. And then if they say something even dumb, like they already are free, that's a no. That's a yeah. no. That's it's, a no. I also, I get the impression of like, you know, <laughs> like a very violent, whatever that act of violence is, getting socked in the mouth and then ask the question, do you want black people to be free? We might need to work on strategy around how and where the violence and the, the, the but the, here's the thing. Well, I think that's a great question to say right after. Do you want black people to be free? No. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in the sense of like, literally, we go around asking white people if we want it, but literally the response to no has to be swift and violent in some Listen, agency. The what would it look like podcast does not endorse random acts of violence against anyone based off their race, color, gender, sexual identity, or class oh, status. Certainly their actions. Certainly we cannot, certainly none of those pre-existing things, but if they go about acting in a way requiring a punch in the mouth, I, as one half of this podcast, do advocate for the mouth punching of people who behave in such as a way that requires a mouth punching to rectify said behavior. Listen, I almost got, I don't know, I don't know whether or not that lended to my subsequent um, exit from a job. But at one point I was working at a predominantly white um, private school, PWI. Um, mm -hmm. And the this, it, I mean, like I was sitting in the office, we're going over like student behavior, the drama of these very, you know, sensibly wealthy children, you know, in, in this community. And one day I was just like real, sick of the shit like and one of the I think the head of the upper school asked me you know what I thought about something and I without really without putting on my my corporate America filter was just like I think that we would have a lot fewer conversations like this if people were a little bit more afraid of getting punched in the mouth like if the if the risk of I mean I didn't grow up I grew up fighting um mm -hmm. and I didn't oh, like really? it uh, yeah I, was, hands? I used to have Damn. to fight yeah I was a fighter um not because I, I wanted to but because I had to like the neighborhood that I grew up in was in one of those where if like somebody hits you you hit them back don't let nobody hit you first you hit somebody first because if they hit you and you get knocked out you get home I'm gonna whip your ass like that was kind of the rule. So, and I got, I was small and got a big mouth. And so I got picked on. Um, I talked myself out of more fights than I got into. Cause I realized I don't, I didn't, I don't like the way that adrenaline of. I know it's fighting sickening. feels in my body. I don't, it's not good. It's not, I don't like feeling. it. I never have. Um, so I really don't like 
to go there. I have a very long fuse. Um, and I also <laughs> don't believe that you can put your hands on somebody and make them do what you want them to do. Like it's no. a very, it's like an externalization of some energy that's inside me. That is my responsibility to handle, but that's also wisdom. That's me being 42 years old right now with, you know, arthritis in my left kneecap, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I ain't really, yeah, yeah. I'm serious. I do. I have, you know what I mean? A little patellar arthritic, arthritic patella. You know what I mean? Shout out to the days, you know, shout out, shout out my arthritic patella. Listen, because, you know, I used to have Megan knees when Megan was in elementary school. I was out here <laughs> popping for the nine nines in the 2000s. OK, understand. I understand this in my knee, but neither here nor there. So I used to <laughs> I know what it feels like. I can, And then I like worked in bars and restaurants and nightclubs for a long time. Like I just I know what a fight smells like. 15 minutes before it happens. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. in a way that's kind of like, I'm constantly trying to be solution oriented in the, like how to prevent this. But I do feel like this new wave of young folks, these young whippersnappers don't have that spidey sense or intuition to be able to anticipate violence they've grown up so safely and inculcated and protected um by their privilege by proximity by rules by whiteness by whatever that they don't have the the as maybe it's the myopia maybe it's i don't know what yeah, it is I would like they to... don't have the they, they can't even tell like you you don't know when monet looked that girl dead in her face and smiled at her and said I'm going to beat your ass. I don't think she really knew that her, that, that was, that was like a, on site. And maybe the only reason that she didn't get punched in the face at that moment. And it, she got told that instead of getting hit first is because Beyonce was on stage. I literally feel like it could have been anybody else and it would have just been a fight. If it, if it were, if it weren't for the sacredness of the container that Beyonce built and just the reverence for like what the Renaissance tour has been and all of that, all of the other elements that were working on our behalf in us having been majority in the space in us celebrating the divine feminine in us being who we were, that shit would have gone way different. Way different. It may have even been different if it had been the folks sitting one row in front of us. She might have got popped. You know what I mean? But I well, think I think there's a. I think you got to differentiate between when you say this generation. I I don't assume you're talking about black kids because I think this generation of black kids, like many generations of black kids, have the preeminent or just perpetual concern of violence. I don't know understanding. Yeah, awareness. I'm talking Unless, about like you uh, said. Yeah, like this generation um, of white kids. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And I, mean, I and I do think we, that's because they think we live in a post racial society. They really still think that, bro. They really they, do be thinking that. Here's the thing, because it's like, oh, so and so called me the n word, and I mean, maybe it was these private school kids too. There's some other levels of of what was happening there, but like. You couldn't call somebody a nigga at my school without getting punched in the mouth. You you couldn't. And so if you know that that's the button that you're going to push, and as a result of that, it's kind of like, well, I'll, I'm your huckleberry. Like, I used to fight this boy named Michael Gurley <laughs> all third grade. 
I used to whip Michael Gurley's ass because like what you're not going to do is call me on my name. There were three different iterations over the course of that school year where Michael Gurley called me a nigger, um, pointed to Niger on the map. Yeah. Pointed to Niger on the map and was like, look, Ebony, this is where you're from. Three different occasions. Three different occasions. In 2016, Michael Gurley sent me an inbox on Facebook. I was about to ask, what happened to Mr. Gurley? Mm -hmm. Apologizing. Saying that he did not understand what he was doing and apologizing for the harm that he caused and was like, I hope you can forgive me. I am really sorry for what I did to you. I don't know what Michael Gurley was going through in his life. I don't know what amends he was needing to make or if he was in a program or whatever. Because I also didn't, it wasn't my responsibility to absolve him, right? So whatever, this is a Facebook inbox message. But he did apologize years later. Shout out, Mr. Gurley. Shout out to Mike. But like for the first 20 years of my life or from the time I was, Eight until I was at what the time maybe thirty two. I held I have major issues with white men and white male aggression um, as it relates to my physical safety because of physical attacks that started in elementary school from racist white boys. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that really have to be established too is though that shit don't happen in a vacuum, bro. No. Racist white boys are the children of racist white men and this shit is generational. Oppression is generational. And that's one of the things I think about a lot too is this like, like I have a hard time believing a lot of times that you emerge from those homes, those environments. And, and unless you're like literally dismantling, attacking, waging war with said family and cutting corners and all that. If you're living in coexistence and habitating peacefully, cohabitating peacefully with people who bear those resentments and they're your parents, Mm -hmm. like at worst, you're a co-conspirator. At best, you're a tacit apologist. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I hate to advocate for violence again, but it's like, I'll trust a white boy who burns his racist white parents' house down. I might, I might. You know what maybe. I mean? I hate to say something like that, but I, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but that's what I'm saying here is it's like, this is what we're talking about. Is it's like, until I can see white people actively dismantle, burn down, and not just relinquish their, the, these privileges, but destroy the systems that they are involved in and not for the interest of being heroes to black people, but for their own self-interest. When white people come to the realization that anti-blackness is harming them and they must dismantle it, then we can talk about like whatever delusion and, and maladaptation of Martin Luther King James speech that you want to talk about. But until then, there's there no so possibility of a post-racist. You know, and that's the thing is like they always decontextualize this shit to talk about it like he was this, like he clearly advocated for reparations and he clearly lambasted the white liberal, but y'all don't want to talk about that shit. And so this imagination of some post-racial society, this rainbow coalition is rooted in the myopia of whiteness. This is just a concert for white women. This is a spiritual experience for black and queer, for black women and queer people. Mm-hmm. That speaks to the myopia. You just think it's a fucking concert. You think it's Kenny Chesney or Jason Aldean or some bullshit. And you don't realize we done, we done damn near broke the bank for this. I done traveled for this. Everybody in here is weeping, weeping yeah, at the side literally. of Beyonce. It's like fucking church. And you think it's just a concert and you pouring Bud Light around. 
the myopia of whiteness deserved to get their ass beat. Deserve they they needed it, and and it's 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 a disease unchecked now. They will walk into other sacred black spaces until finally that sacred black space enacts violence upon them. And then they will be radicalized to being on the wrong side of history and their eventual extinction. Or they will have some revelatory moment, which is like the one out of 100. But most of them will get punched in the mouth and join MAGA. You know, they will go full white supremacist. But that's fine. Go over there. But then you won't come to the Beyonce concert. You know exactly. I mean? Like, this is the thing. Like, you can't have it both ways. Like you said, you can get box braids if I get reparations. But until then, period. Like, period. That's all I got. So yep. I appreciate your support in it is exactly that deep. Um, oh my god, I was horrified. I was over here like, <laughs> I was, I, if I had pearls, if I had pearls, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you done you came in mean? here desecrating the temple of Beyonce, putting your feet all yeah. on the furniture and spilling your drink the on the feet would have been enough for me. The feet would have been enough for me. It would have already been on and popping. See, it, that's it my thing too, is I'm like very pro pro confrontation. Like I enjoy checking people all the time because I think very, I think the reality situation is that it's like, they're all opportunities. That's how I feel. I, I, like I'm, I don't offer quarter anymore. I don't offer quarter. I don't offer space. I'm not here for the bullshit. I'm not here for the fuck shit. You say one thing left and I will use the full weight of my, you know, whatever. And it's, usually it's intellectual. I very rarely have to. But I think when we talk about reading, I read bitches too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's violent. And it's violent, yeah. and I break bitch. I mean, when I say bitches, obviously I'm not speaking about women. I'm just speaking about you know, um, like anybody who needs a quality reading. And I feel like I give it to them in a sense of like, I can articulate that too. I can articulate every personality quirk and flaw you have to the most destructive element. And and I practice, bro. I'll be on Twitter. I'll be getting into it with random trolls just to stay sharp. Just because a bitch might need to read. You know what I mean? And I'm like, if I got to be ready for you, I can't let those reading muscles atrophy. You be a, 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 a snack. I'm a don't, weapon. Don't, I'm be, a, don't be a snack. Well, listen, we no. have, we have yeah. been here all day. Um, and I'm real excited about what will come for this. I have a feeling this is going to be a two part episode because it's too long. Um, for just yes. one time, <laughs> I, I already know that, and that's we will fine. learn the fine art of judicious editing one day, but perhaps yeah. not. Today. I mean, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna play with some editing. Um, okay. okay, I'm gonna play with some editing and see what I can do. But I have a feeling in my spirit that this is going to be a two part episode. Um, I am really excited for this endeavor today yeah we, i think we, this went really well yeah today we kind of explored some of the the fundamentals of of what it is that we're talking about what we're doing here and um yeah i'm looking forward to like inviting other folks into the conversation maybe next time digging a little bit more um deeply into some of the definitions of the work that we're doing and you know yeah figuring yeah. out a way forward some I don't next know. steps some next steps for us you yeah. know what i mean we'll see yeah. what what arises what what wants to be discussed what spirit wants to speak next week but um or in a couple of weeks but this has been a really exciting first episode i'm excited to see where Me we too. go from there um All right. thank you to the people for listening to us 
do we just be out here talking? This is what we do. This is like a conversation between Ebony yeah, and Yonah. Like, this ain't nothing. This ain't nothing to a boss. You feel me? This ain't nothing yeah. to a boss. Nah, nah like but I, I, I do. That's why we go forever because like we be talking about this and that's what I'm saying is I be in community having these conversations with my people all the time and we just blade sharpening blade. This is the work. This yeah. is the work. Yeah. You know? Iron sharpens iron. So mm-hmm. um, that's the ball game, folks. This is the first all episode right. of What Would It Look Like, the podcast. And we will see you back. Maybe I'm supposed to tell people to do stuff like like, comment, <laughs> share. You know what I mean? Did you just give the I blue ivy kiss to the screen? Did you do yeah, that? Sure. That's the blue, that's that the blue ivy piece out. Like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. All yes. right. Shout out Big Go Blue. Blue. Shout out Big Blue. <laughs> Go All Blue. Right, y'all be good. <laughs> All right. Love you. Bye. Bye.